0: But hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another filthy episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. Now, before we can go any further, I must introduce my fantastic co host. It's the one, the only,
1: Michael Verratti. Well, it's lights, camera, and revolution this week, Peaches. I am so excited to be back in Dreamland because. We're celebrating, once again, the mighty Pope of Trash, John Waters.
0: This is my ultimate idol. And we have, of course, done other John Waters films on the Midnight Mass podcast. We have done Desperate Living. Yes. And? Female Trouble. And now this. And... (laughs) 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 The, the, the thing about this movie is it was chosen because we wanted to actually highlight what we consider and the listeners consider to be perhaps an underrated john waters film in his filmography i think if you're a john waters fan truly you love all of his feature films everything he's ever made you're obsessed with you love it but let's face it In any auteur's body of work, you're going to get the Pink Flamingos, the Female Trouble, the Serial Moms, the Hairsprays, like the real headliner titles. And so we put it to a vote. And our Patreon listeners actually had to decide on what underrated John Waters film we would cover on the Midnight Mass podcast. And this
1: is the film that won. What film are we talking about this week? Well, we're talking about 2000s Cecil B. Demented, written and directed by John Waters, of course, and starring Melanie Griffith, Stephen Dorff, Alicia Witt, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Adrian Grenier, Jack Noseworthy, also featuring appearances from Mink Stoll, Patty Hearst, and so many more. This movie I love, love, love. This is one of those John Waters movies that maybe is still catching on with the devoted, but I immediately attached to it upon seeing it because I really, really dug the idea of renegade cinema in this punk rock space. And we talk about this with both of our guests, but this one was one that always hit for me. And I'm glad to know that people are really finding it now. This
0: is a movie that when it came out, I fought for its exclusive run at the Bridge Theater where I was the manager. And actually I had to get on a phone call with John himself and kind of convince him. John was very, very specific about where his films played theatrically around the country, because much like ourselves, John is obsessed with movie theaters. He goes to the movies all the time and he loves the movie theaters of San Francisco. He has a close connection with San Francisco, you know, outside of obviously Baltimore Province town in New York. and he didn't think it should play at the bridge, but I convinced him. And <laughs> when we got the movie, I really, really liked it, but for whatever reason, it was one that was a slow burn for me and I grew to appreciate more and more over time. And truth be told, when we put that poll up on the patreon, we included a dirty shame as one of the one of the options. and I actually voted myself for a dirty shame. That being said, once we dug into Cecil B. Demented and we got into these conversations and I rewatched the film a few times, I realized, oh, God, I'm so glad. I am so glad we've done Cecil B. Demented. I love this movie. It is so rich. It's so bizarre. Yes. It's so audacious in some ways in its sort of commitment to making a bigger budget film for John is underground as possible.
1: I myself did vote for Cecil B. Demented because I was thrilled at the idea of getting to talk about this uh, because what I really like about this movie, as I mentioned uh, in my praise of it earlier, is it does celebrate this idea of underground cinema, the punk rock ethos of doing anything to put it on screen But it also, while being a celebration of John's very roots, is sort of a critique of the people who also go that hard. You know, the idea that, like, you can be too passionate about something. You can lose your humanity in search of art if you're not careful. And that's really an interesting thing in this movie that we're both rooting for the villain, but also understanding their villainy. And I really, really like how this movie uses movies to explore that theme.
0: And of course it takes place in Baltimore, Maryland. And one of the other things that, you know, just tickled me so much as a Maryland native was just how he's able to
1: critique and explore more aspects of Maryland culture But it's that kind of critique that can only come from someone who's there because it's like it's a loving burn, if you will. It's sort of that thing where you can pick on your sibling, but don't you dare let anyone outside of the family do it. And that's something that you can tell John's critique of Baltimore in this movie is damning and loving all at once. And that's kind of the great power of regional filmmakers who bring that flavor of places that aren't Los Angeles or New York to the screen because they get to celebrate their cities and also make fun of their cities in a way that none of us are allowed or would understand how to even begin to do.
0: Yes, exactly. So getting to our first guest, because we have a chunky episode in store for you, dear listeners. This was as John Waters as it gets as far as how I met this person. I was in L.A. staying at your place And I was there to attend the John Waters big gala opening exhibit event for Pope of Trash, which is the museum exhibit. That celebrates the career of John Waters at the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Museum. And this guest I was introduced to by Mink Stahl. I knew of him by reputation. He's a legend out of London, a programmer at a cinema that I frequent. And I thought to myself as we met, oh my god, we have the perfect Midnight Mass episode to have you on, and we're we're making it right now. So I invited him and then I think it was just a few days later, you and I did this interview with him.
1: You had done the conversation with John Waters all about Serial Mom at the Academy, and it was such a celebratory night. And then as we were all kind of getting ready to leave Riding High, I met Ralph, and he was getting ready to go back to London. So we met in person, and then he got on a plane, and like two days later, we recorded with him. So we meet here in L.A. He travels halfway across the world only to talk to us again. That's right. So here it is, our interview
0: with actor, producer, Bon Vivant, and John Waters' super fan, the one, the only, Ralph Bogard. We
2: ain't got no budget. No budget. No craft service, man. No budget. We don't take no notes. No budget. No fucking call sheets, yo. No budget. We ain't recouping shit. No budget. Yeah, we got to start date for real. No budget. Yo, this picture's a go. No budget. Yeah, we gonna turn
3: Hollywood out. No budget. <laughs>
0: It is my extreme pleasure to introduce our next guest on this episode. I just met this person and we were introduced by Mink Stoll herself, of all people, at the giant Pope of Trash, John Waters gala event, kicking off his fantastic exhibit and his being honored by the Academy Museum. But Ralph and I, we are kindred spirits. He is an accomplished actor, singer, director and host. That's right. We're basically the same. (laughs) He's the host for London's Prince Charles Cinema. In central London, a cinema that I'm actually quite familiar with. And he is a camp counselor at Camp John Waters, where he's interviewed our idols. We met and immediately I said, I need you on this episode of our podcast. He is sitting in London right now after just returning from L.A. And we are bothering him so that we can talk about our shared obsession with John and Cecil B. Demented. Without further ado, it's the one, the only Ralph Bogard. Hello, hello. Hi. Hello, hello.
1: Mere days ago, we were talking in the lobby of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles, and now you've flown a world away. And we're still talking about all the things we love, because that's what we do here at Midnight Mass. We are obsessed with movies. We talk about them near and far and at all hours of the day and night. And I think obsession with movies is really kind of key to Cecil Be Demented. Obviously, you love the world of John Waters in general, but uh, we're going to start our focus on Cecil uh, what's your relationship to this movie and John's canon of films and why do you love it so much?
3: Oh, well, I think the thing that really draws me to Cecil Be Demented, aside from being demented myself, is the fact that, um, you know, it's all about the love of cinema and I love cinema. I love film. And, um, John Waters being the kind of gateway drug to cult and weird movies for me when I was younger um, and then led me to falling in love with independent cinema, which brought me to the Prince Charles cinema, which is the only independent cinema in the West end of London. You know, I remember when I applied for a job there originally um, as a front of house member, because I just was like, I need to work in this place. It's the best place in the world. My application was consisted of a love letter to the Prince Charles cinema which they thought was weird, but just weird enough to be hireable, and uh, so <laughs> uh, I started off there. And 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 you know, when you're in a venue like that, which really does celebrate film, the concept of cinema, you know, more than just the blockbuster, more than what Hollywood Hollywood's output, um, you really start to it starts to get into your DNA, you know. And says will be demented, you know, coming out in two thousand was around the time. I was discovering film, loved film and, you know, John Waters itself. So it just speaks to all parts of me and the kind of the love I have for people that break the rules in spite of the success they might have within the rules as well. I would say it's the one of John's oddest films in the sense that it doesn't sit in his canon as much as some of the others. But when you look at it, from a perspective of years later so I you know I've watched it a few number of times obviously and I watched it again just in preparation for this wonderful chat we're gonna have I just thought gosh you know it really resonates even more now because it predicts so much about the way Hollywood was going we all love John Waters and we think he's a prophet in many ways but uh he did prophesize many of the things that we're seeing coming out of Hollywood these days so I think that's one of the reasons I really love it. It's it spoke to me. It speaks about the, you know, breaking the rules. It speaks about the love and passion and and the kind of obsession we have with filmmakers, which clearly we do as well. So that's probably my reason. I rewatched the film uh last night in preparation for the talk. And
0: I ran this film um exclusively as part of being the manager of the Bridge Theatre, which was home to Midnight Mass back in 2000. I lobbied to get this booking exclusively in San Francisco, so it was a big, big deal, and I probably admittedly have seen this film less times than any other John Waters film. And um, part of that's because I ran it at the theater. And when you're, as you know, when you're running a theater, you hear the movie all the time. You, you know, you're around the movie all the time, but you don't necessarily sit and watch it. I would step in and watch favorite moments or favorite scenes. Watching it last night... It had a much bigger impact on me and a much deeper. I resonated with it so much more deeply than I did in 2000, where as an obsessed John Waters fan, admittedly I had expectations going into this film. And what I realized last night was, oh my God, this might be one of his weirdest movies. This might actually be one of his most boundary pushing movies because It's a movie about a cult within a cult made for that cult. And to make (laughs) this movie at that time with all the the sort of coming off the success, you know, at least from a budget point of view and a a critical reception point of view, you know, things like Serial Mom were just so phenomenally accessible, you know, as far as the, the comedy goes. And this is really bizarre. And it speaks specifically to people like us. And I really was hit over the head with that last night thinking, wow, this is so much more audacious than I realized. And you and I are both cinema trash. I mean, I think when you work in cinemas, when you're so drawn to the world of movies and you're not necessarily drawn to hollywood no offense michael when you're more drawn to the sticky floors and the popcorn and the the sound of a projector you know it's like fucking sassel b demented was made for us it was made for us you know
1: yeah and of uh the three of us on this podcast i'm the only one that's been in a lloyd kaufman movie so we'll just (laughs) leave that there (laughs) exactly
0: You're a Hollywood sellout.
1: And yet, dear. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) And you know what? That's the energy to go with right there. So I guess as John
0: Waters obsessives, and I know our listeners will appreciate this, I was kind of looking for sort of the connective tissue. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to bring this up. I felt like this movie and watching it last night reminded me of maybe one of the other Outlander films of his canon, and that's Desperate Living. And... I was watching it last night thinking, I never made this connection before. But you can see how Vincent Peronio and Van Smith especially in the look of the costumes the makeup the bizarre weird you know the sleeves coming off the bottom of her outfit with the upside down jacket and the set right
3: there commune what do you think do you see that connective tissue with Desperate Living the way I did I absolutely do and I think you really picked up on something that was stood that stood out for me you know when I especially weirdly so when I went to the exhibit I that's when it clicked um uh, when i saw the upside down jacket yeah um that only griffith swears and and i and i realized oh gosh backwards day in yes. in desperate living there is that quality where you know when desperate living came out because obviously divine wasn't in that one i think cecil be demented and desperate living are the kind of Marmite films. I don't know if you have that term. You know, if your listeners don't know. I know what it is because I'm an Anglophile. It's one of those kind of films. And we, we use the term a Marmite film or Marmite anything. And I think it's one of those. Uh, and those two definitely sit in that camp. When they arrived, they didn't feel like his films prior. I think there are threads in Cecil B. Demented that we've seen in other films. And we will see in A Dirty Shame. There are threads throughout that John Waters has, you know, that's just... Who he is as a filmmaker, but it does, like you say, they kind of are outliers in their own way. So I definitely see that connection.
1: Well, I love this conversation of considering this movie uh, both an outlier and unusual in his canon, while also sort of recognizing that by being an outlier and by being unusual, it's also still so John Waters. And when you think about it, and I know it's an odd word to use for him and his work specifically, in some ways there's a purity to this movie because it is him turning the camera back on what he does and reflecting kind of this world of cinema. And I'm really interested because when you think about the construction of this movie, like the whole idea of Honey Whitlock being taken and sort of Stockholm syndromeed into this group, of course, is his own sort of commentary on the Patty Hearst thing, which he's a friend of and who appears in his movies. And that sort of it reflects when John would look at modern crime in the early days and put that in his movies, and and the fact that then later, because we all just saw Serial Mom. We have that scene where Beverly Sutman's in the punk club and, like, they are rooting for her and they kind of protect her. It's the outlaws protecting the outlaw. And in this movie, we see the filmmakers go into a porn theater for solace and protection. So there are these threads of John just saying, like, you know, the outlaw space is where we're always going to be safe. It's just a different kind of outlaw. And I think maybe why it feels strange is it's the first time that he's really kind of turning the camera on himself. Not that all of these movies are not in some way reflective of the world he lives in and the the way he thinks. But I'm wondering if because it's cinema, that's why it feels different.
3: It's interesting you say that, because one of the things that I sort of made a note of mentally when watching this is it feels like John Waters, all that jazz, you know, it's his, (laughs) my autobiographical-esque version of his life, you know, in a John Waters way. It's a director that brings together a group of people, creates a kind of family where they really trust in each other with a goal to make something that the auteur being Cecil is the leader of that, you know, they trust in his vision. They trust in his rules. They follow the rules, you know, no sex until the film is done, Um, you know, and, and they believe in him and so much so that they would do anything to ensure the result, you know, and we know, and and hopefully a lot of your listeners know that John sort of cultivated through his friendships, you know, in the, in the, dreamlanders, this community of people that did believe in him and trust in him. You know, when I was talking to Mink at camp, she, she said, you know, they just made films because they were friends and they trusted each other, but they did wild things. You know, you have to really believe in the vision of this person to, to do that. A thing that made me laugh is when I was, when I was talking to her, she said that in, I think it was Pink Flamingos, he had asked her if she would set her hair on fire And she said, yeah, sure. And then, you know, before they went to shoot it, she actually went, oh, actually, no, I don't think, I think it's the first time she said she ever had a real kind of, oh, sorry, John, no, I don't think I want to do that. He was a bit miffed about it. But what I found hilarious is when watching this again, obviously he gets Honey to uh, set her hair on fire at the end. So I was like, oh, you know. I've been so fortunate to get to work with both of them and
0: Mink has told that story and John has told the story and of course they tell it sort of differently, which I love, you know, as you would if you were siblings who've known each other for 50 something years. Now, I love that Mink... I think has more of what we would consider to be like the regular sane reaction to that. And I love that John in a way to this day was kind of like, I can't believe she wouldn't do that. When you know them and you see it in Cecil be demented, I think that you're right. Like where you go, Oh, this is his most autobiographical movie. The finale of this film is his resentment from all those decades ago around Mink not doing what he asked her to do. Hilarious.
1: Well, and not to jump in, but it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's the ultimate sibling kind of like, see, look in the thread of the story. It's her ultimate <laughs> commitment to so, film, yeah. Mink. Yeah, <laughs> it's really rubbing her nose in it. Now,
0: <laughs> when *Cecil B. DeMinted came out in 2000, that was the time when I invited mink to come and do midnight mass in person and i'd never met her and i grew up reading she used to have a column in the baltimore city paper called think mink and i was obsessed with all of them growing up in maryland we would go to baltimore and like hang out and go places hoping to run into her or you know john obviously or susan we'd we'd hang out at the bookstores and the coffee shops we were too young to get into bars and I never met her. I never saw her. I met John when I was in college, but then doing Midnight Mass, finally inviting her to come and be part of Midnight Mass, it coincided really with the release of Cecil B. Demented, it, it kind of accidentally. And Michael, you may have heard me tell this story before, but the writer of the Bay Area Reporter that did the um article John Blanco was a friend of mine and John and I were of the same mindset and he and I he worked at the bridge theater we did a a sort of an illegal screening ahead of its release because we got the print so we saw Cecil be demented you know by running it for the staff you know and and a very drunken debaucherous evening at the (laughs) bridge theater you know closed to the public and um John and I were so bummed that Mink died right at the beginning. I mean, I had to love her scene. It's one of the most John Waters moments when she's, you know, arguing with that kid who's dying, you know, it's just so fucking funny. And of course, Mink just approaches the whole thing unapologetically. The article that came out in the Bay Area Reporter, the headline was, Give Us Back Our Mink. And it was directed towards John. And it was all about her being at the Bridge Theater and being in tribute. And of course... You know, Mink and I did the show and and she loved the article and she (laughs) loved the show. And there was this sort of, you know, sense amongst the fans. I think some of us were maybe disappointed, you know, when the movie came out that there wasn't more Mink or more of this or more of that. But watching it. Last night, with all the years in between, one thing I realized is there wasn't really room for as many of them in this movie. If you look at the way it was created, it's a movie about young people, you know, with one older actress. That's really what it's about. And Melanie Griffith, I think, made total sense. You know, she comes from Hollywood royalty. She is part of the lineage of Hollywood. Her casting was so brilliant. Mink showing up is absolutely delicious. But one of the scenes that I'd forgotten about that is so wonderful is the scene with the old Dreamlanders throwing jujubes. You've got Mary Vivian Pierce outside protesting, Cecil be demented, and you've got this sort of group of Karens, essentially. It's Susan Lowe. It's Mary Vivian Pierce. At one point, Channing Wilroy makes uh, a quick flash appearance in another scene when they're on the movie set. What's it like seeing the Dreamlanders pop up, you know, in these modern John Waters films?
3: I mean, it's delicious, It's absolutely correct. It's what you want to see. They're also playing against the type that we expect of them. So yes. how, how more subversive can you get the person that gave us these people who we who we celebrate for their wonderful behaviours and, and characters before, and, and he's turning it on their heads and they're the ones that are, you know, protesting the crazy, insane behaviour of Cecil and his sprocket holes. I think that's perfect. And I love that John did that. He's laughing at himself. He's laughing at the perception of who he is as a filmmaker. He's laughing at what people perceive him to be. And that's why I think this is the most interesting choices for John and his films, because, as I say, it is very self-referential. He looks at himself, he looks at his perceived character out in the world and, you know, holds a mirror up to it, whereas in turn, he's holding a mirror up to what society and filmmakers and film and Hollywood should be funnily enough as I said earlier a lot of the things he said became the truth I mean we are literally living in a world of sequels right now with film in Hollywood yeah. Forrest Gump 2 <laughs> <I> mean- <laughs> <laughs> with Kevin Nealon
1: it was fabulous
3: I do yeah. wonder
1: uh in in taking into account the Melanie Griffith of it all you know when we talk about Serial Mom there is an intense reverence for Kathleen Turner and her performance and justly so it's an amazing performance And when looking at this movie, as Peaches points out, Melanie Griffith is brilliant in it. And Melanie Griffith does something really remarkable. She's in on the joke. She understands what she's doing. She's Hollywood royalty, kind of sticking her nose up at Hollywood in this. And I'm wondering because we, I think all can agree that in the John Waters canon, this is one of those movies that is still in some ways catching on, whereas others were sort of like more immediate. Like, I I think that this one still is like kind of finding its kind of conversation. And I'm wondering if we don't talk about Melanie Griffith the same way we talk about Kathleen Turner yet, because for so long, John Waters appeal was to film nerds and film fans. And maybe it was like a little tougher for them to access the idea of him poking fun of cinema. Is is that fair to say? Or do you think it's something else?
3: I think that's a very astute, you know, observation. I think that is fair. I love Melanie's performance in this. I think, as you say, she's definitely in on the joke. She understands. And actually, she's poking fun at The world and the lineage she comes from as well. I think to accept a John Waters film, you have to know that you're going to be taking risks. And any actor that signs on without realising what they're expecting is just never going to work. And it does work. As you said, um, Peaches, you know, this is a film full of real like kind of young, upstart, energetic performers. You know, so many of them This was very early in their career, and they've gone on to have huge successes and and quite long careers. Some maybe not as much, but they all had a great energy. There was this kind of rebellious energy. I mean, Stephen Dorff is is excellent. Yeah, performances absolutely spot on. And it's not to the point where you think he's unbelievable. He's absolutely believable in in the believable circumstances. I do agree. I think, you know, you're also looking at something that's poking fun at the kind of American dream, the 50s, you know, aesthetic, you know, and that's so quickly identifiable, you know, with Cecil Be Demented, you're asking people to accept a world that maybe they don't also understand because you have to be geeks like us to to, to kind of get that straight away and you're right i think people are starting to love it more and more but sometimes that's the case with certain films you know people always talk about pink flamingos but actually a lot more people really love you know female trouble that's the one but i really love you know desperate living as well like i love them all i mean that's that's a given to be perfectly honest but there is a, a love that's growing for the films that people don't talk about as much um you know, Polyester just had a wonderful re-release with Cr- Criterion as well. I think that one's quite equatable to, you know, Serial Mum in a way, because it's got a similar kind of energy about it. But it's taken a long time for that one to to get that recognition as well. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right that this film is starting to, to maybe sit where it is. And I think maybe it's taken that time for it to make sense. Last night when I was
0: watching the film two things kind of um, came to mind. One is that Melanie really delivered a really fun performance. And what's interesting is she smartly played it big and campy and John Waters at the beginning as her Hollywood persona. And as she gets more and more seduced by the cult, she starts to play it like she is in Working Girl again. You know, yeah. she starts to play it like so real and so subtle and so sweet. You know, like the moment Moments where she's trying to get Fidget to call his parents. I really give her a lot of credit that I hadn't really noticed before. Like, oh, she made smart choices. She's so good. She's so good. And then I was thinking, what's the connection between her and John? Is there any connection? There is. Okay, this is convoluted. Stick with me. John was obsessed with and friends with Kenneth Anger, as we know from the uh, the movie itself. But also if you're a John fan, you know that. Kenneth was very close with Anton LeBay Anton LeBay had a tiger named Togar that was rescued by Tippi Hedron okay Melanie was a child who grew up with Togar <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you have it <laughs> anyway I think Togar's in that movie that Tippy made with all the animals right Roar
0: yeah and Melanie was a kid when that was done so wild they do have sort of a connection and they probably have more of a connection that I just don't know about That's a good one though that's that's solid. Okay, thank you, thank you. I figured that you would appreciate that.
1: Well, before you get to your question, Peaches, one thing I wanted to comment on before we get too far away, I really liked, Ralph, what you said about how believable Steven Dwarf is and what I think is really notable about this performance. Like, all three of us work not just in making films, but in film exhibition, and so we know film bro when we see it. This is like kind of like that film bro intensity, but it's especially like something that people are more aware of now because they also populate social media spaces. But when this movie was made, Those spaces didn't exist. And so this was John kind of like, once again, prophetically warning us early, this is what happens when your movie intensity is too intense, because who was seeing it at that time? People like John, people like Lynch, like Herzog, who are in public spaces that are dealing with that. And I think that it's sort of, I'm having my own like epiphanal moment, like he called out film bros before we even had a word for it. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: so with the sprocket holes obviously that's the cult that we are cheering on in this film they brand themselves but before they brand themselves they tattoo themselves and so for each of you you cannot choose john waters but you're a sprocket hole and you've got to choose your filmmaker now you are allowed to choose one that was used in the movie if you so desire the only rule is you cannot have john waters tattooed on you who do you each choose I'll be honest, I am really struggling with this. Like, when I came up with sort of the question last night, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know. Because for me, the obvious answer would be John, you know. Right. Um, so I think probably maybe, you know, I, I would guess maybe for Ralph as well. Michael, I'm not sure. I, I could sort of guess that you might choose, like, a Stuart Gordon or maybe a Lloyd Kaufman, mostly for personal reasons, you know.
1: Both of them, I, I have... A personal connection to. And, uh, but I I would actually say. It's funny, after the Academy evening, uh, when we were out to dinner with KJ, the programmer at the Academy, she and I actually talked about this while you were talking to someone else. And I jokingly said, I was like, well, I can't fit Ken Russell's name across my knuckles. And she was just like, well, if you could, if you're imaginative about it, like yeah. she like she kind of threw it back. I don't know. It would. I would probably say if I'm picking someone that I have no like direct connection to, maybe Dario Argento.
3: That's a great choice, actually. Okay, Ralph. Was might be the person that most people have tattooed at camp. Certainly there are plenty of people that have John Waters tattoos.
0: Yes, of course. But who would you choose? What filmmaker that's not
3: John Waters? That isn't in Cecil B. Dementia? No, no, no. It, it can be. It can be. I love Almodovar as well. Of course. Of course. I mean. I mean
0: camp. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I would also probably choose someone who was already used in the film. Um, thanks to John. And. You know who's not used in the film that I might, like, if I'm narrowing it down, I think it would come down to Herschel Gordon-Lewis, William Castle, or Russ Meyer, to be honest. And Russ Meyer is not in Susie Demented, unless I'm missing it, right? Which is surprising. Although, Although, John and I, we went and Chatted after the um, show the other night. I was surprised because he had to have been so exhausted. He had been working all day, and um, he had to get up the next morning to do his Hollywood star. But you know, he said, "No, Nehat, you and Joshua were going and having a glass of wine." but Nihat, you're going to drink with me. And we went and, you know, John's not that big of a drinker, but he and Nihat, they opened that bottle of wine and we sat there and talked for the duration of Serial Mom screening, which was lovely. And, you know, he was just so full of joy. But I did say something about you know how beyond the valley of the dolls was one of the, you know absolutely one of the best movies ever made and we talked about how much we loved it and then he talked about russ and how kind of russ sort of turned on him at the end but that's not unusual for anybody with a a, a russ lineage because russ suffered from dementia and it's it's well known that the end of his days were kind of rough That being said, that might be why Russ isn't uh, a tattoo. Because we know, if you're a fan of John Waters, we know that the Russ Meyer influence is just massive. Okay, it's between Russ Meyer and William Castle. Oh, God, oh, God. I guess I'd choose... William Castle, because William Castle for me is what Peaches is most aligned with say. as far as what I do. You know, so it goes beyond just his movies, it's his whole everything he stood for. You know, that's basically what I do as Peaches. So it would be William Castle.
1: Anybody who knows you as Peaches knows that you look like a William Castle girl, but you're a William no, Castle. No, I look like a Russ Meyer girl. No, you God bitch. Damn it, that's even actually what I was trying to say. <laughs> I, <laughs>
0: I've yeah, got yeah. the shape of a Russ Meyer girl, but I've got the showmanship of a William Castle. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. My second question is for you nerds. And I want all the the Patreon subscribers to to chime in on this. Whenever we do a John Waters thing, the Patreon kind of explodes because Always. all of us John Waters fans want to talk and talk and talk. Okay. Favorite sprocket hole. If you could hang out with just one of them and be friends with just one of them, who would you choose?
3: Well, I know my answer. Ralph, what's yours? I'd have to have a toss up between Cherish
0: and Lyle. All right. Yeah, that that makes sense. Both of those actors both had bigger careers. And I think they both really nail being in a John Waters
3: movie. Absolutely. The performances are tone perfect. There's nothing wrong with them. The balance between the lunacy and the honesty underneath it all was just always there. And I think it takes really intelligent actors to be able to navigate that. And certainly they are. So I think if I was to hang out with either sprocket holes, I think I'd have to have Lyle in small doses, like the amount of drugs that he might offer me. <laughs> <laughs> but hang out with Cherish. because Cherish would be like your girlfriend. We'd party, we'd have a good time, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, as I told you while you were in Los Angeles, Ralph, I have a great affinity for Cherish as well. So she would have been my answer. I, in fact... In a movie full of great quotes, Alicia Witt's delivery of the appalling Christmas story that she tells is one of my favorite things in this whole movie when she's like, jingle balls, jingle balls. Love it. So, yeah, she would be my selection. And I guess maybe in a close second would be Raven because I always love Maggie Gyllenhaal's Intensity. Always,
0: Yeah, Becky Gyllenhaal is wild in this movie. So <laughs> re-watching the movie last night, and this is why I asked this question. The one I fell in love with last night. Now, granted, this changes probably every time I see it. I was enamored by Petey and, you know, just kept thinking, like, the fact that John created this gay character who's unapologetically out of the closet gay but basically is chop top from texas chainsaw massacre too (laughs)
3: yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know it's so weird and then also if you know john that actually is the kind of gay person he's attracted to like i remember once he said to me i said something like well what's your type you know what's your type without missing a beat he's like gator Gator from Female Trouble. That's his type, you know. And Petey is sort of gator, but gay. He's like the gay gator. But watching him last night, I'm like, this is so Bill Mosley. This is so Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I just loved it. Anyway, that's my answer for today. For today.
3: I always think it's funny in the film, though, when I was watching it, that um, Rodney, you know, the hairstylist who's sad that he can't be gay. (laughs) You know, he plays that so well because, you know, he's the hairstylist. He's breaking that, you know, stereotype of a gay hairdresser. So he's filling all of those expectations, but also saying, I hate that I'm not gay. I wish I could be. I've tried kissing PD. PD loves me, but I can't do it, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, and the sadism of the roots is so fucking funny. It's like one of those John Waters thought up thing of like, I'm going to punish this woman through bleaching her roots repeatedly, just yeah. hilarious.
3: <laughs> no, it's not roots, it's scabs.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it scabs, it's scabs.
1: Well, as far as nerdy questions goes, I think that anytime you talk about a John Waters movie, and it's true of all of them, they're also quotable. As I mentioned, I love the Alicia with. Christmas story. And as I was giving the Jingle Bells line, I saw you Ralph mouthing along with me because you love it, you know it. So that's my question for you. Do you have a favorite line or lines in this movie that you think
3: of more than others? There's a few. I see London, I see France, I see Honey's underpants. (laughs) Oh, there's something about the drugs. What is that? Lyle said, he says, um, oh, I used to have so many problems, but now I only have one. Drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so
0: good. So So good. It really helped him, his drug addiction. My favorite used to be, what do I look like, Liberace's fucking boyfriend? You know, when she's, you know, upset about the the white limousine. But last night, I think that Alicia Witt, it's not just the jingle balls. It's the line before it where she's like my entire... Family fucked me under the Christmas tree. It is so shocking. It, it actually reminds you of like something from Pink Flamingos. Like, But the way he kind of gets around it, which is great, is he's actually commenting on, and I don't know if you remember this, and of course my mind started thinking about this last night. I was like, oh, that's around the time that Roseanne had come back out and said that her recovered memories of being molested by her parents were in effect made up. And she, Roseanne, because she went to war with her sister over this whole thing where she came out and said, my parents, you know, did this and this and this, and these are all recovered memories I have. And she wasn't the only celebrity to do this, then recanted it and said that she had imagined all of this. So that's actually what I think that moment's about, because if you listen to Melanie Griffith kind of making fun of it, it's Melanie Griffith saying, those aren't real memories. You've done this recovered memory thing, which for a short period of time, this was happening in pop culture.
3: I actually didn't know about that or I didn't remember about that period of time. And it's really great that you you, you give that information because when I watched it, I was like, that's such a bold situation for someone to, to, to say and to be made a joke of in a way. Yeah. Um, and I was like, gosh, that's really kind of dark and you know, perhaps over the line. But when you explain that, and also Roseanne's in the movie... Yes, I think you're really on the money there because that absolutely reframes it and gives it an understanding of of what John was trying to say with that moment and that and and this thing. I think you you actually have re clarified that for me, which makes me feel much better because I felt like that was a bit
0: it was shocking watching yeah. it last night, and I had forgotten about the follow up sequence and so when the follow up sequence was happening, I was like, "Oh." She uses the words recovered memory.
3: because oh, that's right. right. And that
0: is John's way of saying this isn't real. This never happened, you know.
1: But it, yeah. it just shows how masterful he is because when we look at the course of all of his movies and a lot of the humor that we laugh at in his movies, a lot of it is very transgressive and a lot of it is very dark, but he approaches it in such a knowing way that you understand that while you're looking at these intense insane characters, you're not necessarily supposed to be laughing at them. I, I, well, you know what I mean. Basically, he's using the humor to comment. And so you're sort of laughing at how just bananas and maybe awful it
3: is while also recognizing it. It's very smart. I think the one thing that that I will absolutely stand by is that John never is out there to hurt anyone. Correct. Yeah. Now, having met him now a number of times and seen his work and have him be very open, luckily I've been privileged to seeing his work in development that he does share at Camp which is lovely. He's open to, you know, feedback to the things that people might be upset or hurt by. He that's never his goal, but he is absolutely transgressive and will push boundaries but he has reasons for everything which is why it's great peaches that you you gave me that context that i wasn't necessarily aware of perhaps because i'm you know in the uk and at the time you know that information didn't quite come over because that felt off but now it makes complete Sense. so um it was like a trend that was very short-lived
0: and i think the reason it was short lived was because roseanne in some ways was the i mean it was a very big scandal for her to come out and say this and then for geraldine her sister who's a lesbian to come out against her and they had worked on that tv show together and those two were very very close so it was this big story first that she had you know come out to say oh, i've been molested by my parents like it was shocking and then yeah. for geraldine to come out and say roseanne's full of shit and now of course we we know Roseanne has a lot of mental stuff going on, right? Like, and at the time we were just starting to see it. And then for, you know, it was kind of like a year or two later, Roseanne goes, just kidding. That never happened. You know, this recovered memory work that I was doing with a therapist was actually all fake. It was because other celebrities were doing recovered memory type stuff, which was really kind of like therapists guiding them to, Remember things that didn't happen, which is also what anyone can do. You know, we can be, it's what police do when they, they get people to confess crimes that never happened. You know, that it's, yeah, it's a really brilliant thing. But that's what's in Cecil B. Demented, I'm convinced, because watching it last night, if you miss it, it's a real little moment where Melanie Griffiths is actually laughing at her. And what yeah. she's, yeah, what she says is recovered memory, recovered memory. It's like, oh, when we have a guest on, like you, Ralph, we could just talk forever. I want to know where our listeners can follow you and keep up with all the fun stuff you're doing, both in the UK and with Camp John Waters and, you know, all of the stuff that you do. And, and I mean, I don't know if you could talk about the
3: upcoming exciting project you're working on, but I know our listeners would be probably interested. The best way to find out most up-to-date stuff is to just follow me on social medias. Um, and that's at Ralph Bogard. So yeah, not like Humphrey and not like Dirk. So no <laughs> B-O-G-A-R-D. Yeah, that's the one. But yeah, the next thing I'm doing, which is kind of fun and exciting and actually has a John Waters connection, weirdly, is I'm going to be in a new musical that's uh, touring the UK and hopefully going into the West End. It's called I Should Be So Lucky. Um And it's a new, brand new musical based on the music of Stock, Aitken, and Waterman, who are producers and writers of songs from the 80s, including Rick Astley, Banana Rama, Kylie Minogue, um, specifically, who's also going to be in the show in a digital form. And, excitingly, Divine. They produced all of Divine's music that was a real, you know, Divine was a huge pop sensation in, in Europe, especially during that time. And they produced... His album, So uh, hopefully one of Divine's songs will be in the show, but we start um, the project imminently and that will be on tour in the UK through November to May next year. Amazing. Amazing.
1: Ralph, thank you so much for talking to us through your jet lag of your love <laughs> of John Waters and Cecil B. Demented. Uh, also, it was just lovely meeting you this week and getting to do this. Uh, Thank you, thank you so much. We, We are so grateful that you came and celebrated Phil today.
3: Oh, always. Thank you so much. I feel dirtier and delightful all at the same time now.
1: That was our fantastic conversation with Ralph Bogard. What I love about Ralph's commitment to John Waters is it obviously runs deep. Well, look, he flew all the way to Los Angeles for the exhibit opening at the Academy. But also when we were talking to him, he had so much John Waters paraphernalia around him. You can tell it's something that really is part of his DNA at this point. But particularly special about the connection to Cecil B. Demented, of course, is the fact that he is an exhibitor of film. And this movie is all about film and what it means to screen underground film for the audience and how that changes you. So there's something specific about Cecil B. Demented for folks like Ralph, folks like us, that is really special because we get that power of taking the underground and putting it in front of someone's eyeballs. One of the things that I thought about
0: after we did the interview with Ralph was just how much I... Love that I, as a kid, was so influenced by British exports. You know, I I loved the music of The Smiths and Depeche Mode, and I loved punk rock culture and you know the punk movement that was born of Vivian Westwood and the Sex Pistols and all of that. But it's so nice as an adult to see how much my Maryland idols influenced the London scene and how much John Waters actually is an export that has infiltrated the world and brought filth to other places. It wasn't until I was invited to do the Alternative Miss World pageant at the Globe Theatre that I realized that Divine had this rich history of going to London and being put up on a pedestal hosting the Alternative Miss World pageant, their drag pageant, produced by artist Andrew Logan, that you realize oh my God, John was reaching British culture with these movies. You know, I mean, of course, this is well before Cecil B. Demented, but Ralph, in many ways, is the legacy of this. You know, this sort of British embracing of the films of John Waters and their obsession with American white trash, for lack of a better (laughs) word. No, I
1: love this exploration because I think that there's something to be said about kind of the punk grass is always greener on the other side. You talk about the British invasion and how we were really obsessed with sort of the anarchy and the British punk and how it feels so foreign and forbidden when you're here and not there and sort of In a turn of things, it makes sense then that the things that were subversive here would seem extra transgressive over there because it's also an ocean away. It feels out of reach. Look what they're doing in America. Look what they're doing in London, depending where you are. I recently got to executive produce a movie called The Latent Image, which was made in the UK, and those filmmakers were very, very... Influenced by American cinema, so much so that that was what they wanted to talk to me about. And the whole time I was like, no, but you guys have some of the most subversive cinema. So I think you're always kind of looking beyond your own borders for the thing that's going to push the envelope. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, this episode, like we said earlier, came to us because of our dear Patreon listeners who lately have been very engaged. We've been sharing all sorts of photos of them. We've been back and forth about our favorite new movies and we've gone to them actually now a number of times to inform us on what they want to see Midnight Mass cover. So if you don't yet subscribe to the Patreon, but you want to be more a part of this cult, if you want to become an official Children of the Popcorn card carrying member, then head on over to our Patreon and support the podcast because when you subscribe to our Patreon, not only is it hella fun, but you're actually supporting the dark arts, which is how Michael and I keep this show
1: on the road. So that's my pitch this week. And it's a solid pitch because as you said, they picked this episode and I can tell you later this spring, they picked another one and it is... A magical doozy. I love the idea of a membership card. We should get one made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when I joined the Satanic Temple, I I had the option
0: to get a a certificate. So I have that hanging proudly in my home. I think we should create, you know, official documents for our children of the popcorn.
1: I'm all in. Speaking of people who are devoted children of the popcorn, but also film exhibitors, our next guest is someone whose work is, in some ways, a direct descendant of the original Midnight Mass. This person has been part of the Peaches Christ
0: universe for a long time and certainly is carrying the torch that I had the luxury of carrying of a long history of San Franciscan underground drag that's just fucking weird-ass shit you don't find anywhere else. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's hear it for Piranha Psychotronica.
2: No, never say goodbye. Say ciao.
1: Ciao, ciao, ciao! Ciao, ciao,
0: Okay, everybody. Well, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce our next guest who I've actually known for quite some time. My memories are that I met this person when they were very, very youthful. In fact, they were still a college student attending university when they began working with Peaches Christ Productions way back when and worked their way up and through the ranks to become stage manager and left us to create their own universe of productions and exciting things. She is the co-creator of Media Meltdown. Uh, She can clarify all of this in a minute if I get anything wrong. Media Meltdown, to me, is one of the most exciting things happening in San Francisco. And partly, it's because I see it as being part of the legacy that's Midnight Mass, which is part of the legacy that is the Cockettes. And it's keeping San Francisco drag and the kind of shows we do interesting and unique. She actually has a show where the audience gets to select thine own journey but well, I mean how clever and great is that she does these incredible screenings at beautiful neighborhood theaters like the Balboa and the Four star with special guests with drag performances with game shows and more. without further ado it's the fabulous piranha
2: Psychotronica yay Woo-hoo. Hi peaches hi Michael. That was a perfect intro. Thank you so much. We did just call it Choose Your Own Adventure at first, but uh, we're worried that we were going to get sued as the show... We did it at Sketchfest earlier this year and I was like, that's a big enough stage that somebody who's involved with Choose Your Own Adventure might notice it. Right. To come up with a new uh, name for this show. Can you just tell me, as
0: someone who hasn't attended, is that where the audience, as the show is happening, gets to a point, much like a Choose Your Own Adventure game or book, where you turn to the audience and go, okay, which direction do you want to go in next?
2: Absolutely. So I've been working in theater for 15, 20 years. I was a kid, and I had never seen this done. I had had this dream of doing this for ages, and never seen anybody else try it. I can now tell you it's because it is a massive undertaking that is <laughs> cool falls. I bet. Uh, but we have a group of local drag performers, and as you uh, know, San Francisco drag performers, all hilarious. Uh, so we've got some of our our brightest, funniest stars up there, dressed as elves and hobbits and orcs uh and i throw them into this quest where they have to save the universe or what have you but the audience every five ten minutes whenever there is a a good crux moment gets the opportunity to choose are they going to go left and right up or down pick up the big stick don't pick up the big stick whatever it is and uh They have genuine consequences. The characters can die. The audience gets one rewind where they can kind of uh, backtrack and save somebody if they mess it up. But if not, the show could end kind of early. Uh, But normally the audience makes it to the end and there's like four different endings that they could end up with where they succeed or they fail or they have some kind of mixed success. And uh, it relies a lot on kind of the memory and improv skills of our actors. Uh, my partner Kafka X, who I produce Media Meltdown with, is kind of our Dungeon master s character who kind of uh, leads the path of the audience and the performers when they can't remember what they're supposed to do next. Uh, but it's a lot of fun and people uh, get really amped and uh, just excited to see it over and over again so that they can see what all the different choices lead to. That sounds awesome.
1: It does sound awesome and it sounds like a wild night and I think that... When Peaches was introducing you, she was talking about how Media Meltdown in many ways is a descendant of Midnight Mass. And one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about and why you're here to talk to us about this specific movie is that you did a John Waters movie that Peaches never did at Midnight Mass, and that's Cecil B. Demented. And I want to talk to you about celebrating that film particularly at Media Meltdown in a few. But first, let's start at the beginning. When did you first see Cecil B. Demented? When did you fall in love with it? What's your origins with this movie?
2: I was probably about 14 or 15. The previous year or so, when I was in eighth grade, don't be mad by these years, Peaches. (laughs) I know you've got a complex.
0: I don't care. (laughs)
2: in 2004 or so i was 13 and i grew up in a very small conservative farming town where i did not know a single other queer person at this point i had realized that i was queer and goth and was just trying to float through this town and like survive until i was 18 and could escape i just really didn't know anybody who was weird or interested in any of the same things that i was And uh, I found this book in my local library. I want to shout out our library, and I don't know their name, but God bless them because they saved my life. They uh, stocked a book called The Queer Cinema Film Reader, or Queer Cinema, The Film Reader, I think it was. And it had a picture of a Hedwig, John Cameron Mitchell's Hedwig on the cover. And I was entranced and got this book and took it home and just poured over it. My parents didn't know I had it. They had this deal set up for me because they knew I was a big horror movie fan. So at our local video store, Valley Home Video, I had like a written waiver for my parents that I could rent R-rated movies without their permission. So I went home that night after getting the book, and I rented Hedwig, Rocky Horror, and Polyester. Um, And I stayed up until three in the morning and I watched them all back to back. And that was my personality from there on out. In eighth grade, I was like, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. You know, Rocky Horror is kind of a one and done. You had shock treatment, but otherwise it was pretty self-contained. Hedwig is just a solo film. Obviously, John went on and made other things. But uh, Polyester opened a door to so many other things. John Waters had a massive filmography already at that point. And so I started pouring through everything. Cecil was probably the fifth or sixth film I watched. I just started renting everything and watching it late at night after my parents had gone to bed. And frankly, it was the one that I was least interested in at, at that time. I was just kind of beginning my film education and didn't know who Kenneth Anger and William Castle are. Well, maybe I knew William Castle. I was a big horror movie fan. But, you know, there was a lot of names mentioned in that movie and kind of. Uh, references to underground, uh, filmmaking that I had not really had any experience with. So the first time I saw it, it really didn't do much for me. But the longer I sat with it, the more I watched it, the more I kind of continued on and then later started working with Peaches and the, what remained of the Cockettes and doing, uh, really worshiping in a cr- church of cult cinema and creating underground art with like-minded people that that movie grew and grew and grew in my appreciation for it and how much I kind of related to the characters and what they were overall doing until the point where it became one of my favorites. And yes, we did do a media meltdown celebration of it, which was a lot of fun. We had a packed house and uh, that show continues to have reverberations because uh, it really was, I think the first time that a lot of people in the San Francisco drag community had seen that film. We had a lot of people come out, like uh, Mama Celeste and Beatrix Lehane, who produced Oaklash. And uh, later, Beatrix put me into Tragic Queendom, where uh, Kafka X and I got a chance to perform in front of John Waters in a John Waters drag contest. And uh, Kafka X ended up winning. I have it on good authority that it came in a close second, but I can't confirm that. His John didn't say it himself <laughs> on stage. They only found a winner. But my partner and I uh, you know, did very well in it. John loved our numbers. I have video of him laughing along as I perform. And I think uh, Beatrix really sweetened the pot in our intros because she went on a long spiel for both uh, Kafka and I about how we had exposed her to Cecil B. Demented and just opened her eyes to this amazing film and yada, yada, yada. Neither of us ended up doing a Cecil B. Demented number for that show. I had strongly considered it, but it didn't end up happening. But I really, I could see John getting like excited about like, oh, really? That's nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you obviously had a very similar experience with
0: what I call the John Waters immersion period that many of us John Waters obsessed folks have had. I find it's a very common thing. You discover that first John Waters film and then your life is forever changed as you swim in the waters of all things John Waters. Cecil B. Demented, like you say, is one that I had to kind of appreciate more over time and I love it so much now and rewatching it the other night I found so much that I I enjoyed about it and one of the things I really like about it is that it is a bigger budget film of his when you compare it to the early movies but it has themes and dialogue and references that are very niche and very underground I mean that's that's the whole thing I think it's one of the things I appreciate most about it now um, as time has gone by Specifically, though, with this film, I noticed how it felt a lot like Desperate Living as far as the earlier films go. It feels a bit outside the other films that were made around the same time. And it has an aesthetic that looks like Mortville. I love their sort of squat, you know, their cinema squat and feel like, oh shit, that's Vincent Peragno doing like a retread on Mortville. And uh, Van Smith having a blast with sort of the costumes of Mortville and reconfiguring the sort of DIY fashion, you know, for, for this cult cinema group. And I'm wondering... What is it that you love about Cecil B. Demented? Like These are the new things that I really picked up on that I was like, oh my God, this is so great. I hadn't realized this or I hadn't connected with this. What is it that you love about Cecil B. Demented and what makes it special for you as a a John Waters film? Because I do think it's special. I do think it stands out.
2: I think you really hit the nail on the head comparing it to Desperate Living, especially because of the absence of Divine really stands out in his earlier film set. But I think that that one in particular is really like we are aiming for the weirdos with this one mortville is a place that is a haven for freaks in a lot of different ways you know and you meet all these characters who didn't have a place in normal society whereas like something like a polyester obviously we're taking more of a look at suburban life or or kind of normy life through this melodramatic lens even female trouble like you're still in a city Filled with normal people, and these are just criminals who are existing in it. Cecil B. Demented doesn't feel like Serial Mom. It doesn't feel like Crybaby or uh, any of the other things that were coming out at that era. It does really feel unique because. You have to be a little bit of an underground cult film fan to enjoy it, to really, I think, get a lot of what it is trying to do. I think it's also kind of skewering a lot of the filmmaking style and independent style at the time of like Dogma 95 and things of that nature. And the more I got into that, the more it really felt like it was rewarding me as a film fan. That's all great and fun and fine. I think that is one of the things that really makes it stand out, unlike a lot of John's films. It's got a really unique style that is very distinctly 2000. Is that when this movie came out, 2000, 2001? Yeah. Somewhere around there. It's got all this heavy metal and hip hop and kind of like an industrial, almost new metal style that doesn't exist anywhere else. But like for somebody who grew up in that the late 90s, early 2000s, that like really spoke to me as a style. I appreciated this group of weirdos underground, on the run, living out completely outside of society's norms much like desperate living there is nothing for them that they have to hold sacred to them it's just about the creation of art and everybody else can suck it having known you both for a while we're pretty sensitive i don't think any of us are violent people but i love the idea of just being able to go guns a blazing into the forest gump two set and really letting (laughs) the normies know like this is how we think of you Uh, you know, crashing the film commission lunch and arguing with the moms outside of the theater, just getting the opportunity to say and do all of the things that we wouldn't really be able to in real life and nor would we necessarily want to. I don't want to cause anybody harm, but there is something amazing about watching somebody who has like-minded ideals get to be a terrorist and just be like, this society is insane and I'm going to do everything I can to fuck with it. Uh, It is powerful and kind of liberating in that way. I think that's one of the things that really spoke to me is just this group of people coming together. And certainly they've got problems in the film. They are a cult. I wouldn't want to join that group in real life, necessarily given the opportunity, but they're fierce. You know, I I 100% love... Every single one of the people in that group. I love Raven, the Satanist makeup artist. I love the gay transport driver and his straight love who can't return his feelings and their tortured romance. I love um, Lewis, the art director, you know, this amazing world he's built for them. It's all these people who I would individually want to hang out with in real life have come together in maybe an unhealthy way but you get it it feels like a family and like the kind of thing that especially when i was 14 and first saw this movie i was really yearning for And I think that's part of the reason why I kept coming back to the film over and over again, even though it didn't quite click at first. I was like, I can tell that there's something here that really is like speaking to my soul.
1: What I think is interesting about both you and Peach's kind of journey with this movie is it was an evolution. It wasn't the one that you were attracted to initially, but it kept growing. And I, I know from interviews with John that this among his catalog is one of the ones that maybe is not as beloved as others. He kind of speaks of it as an underdog amongst underdogs. And you were talking about this a little bit when you were referencing the suburban setting of polyester, similarly serial mom. But I kind of want to talk about accessibility because in some ways, every John Waters movie is about outsiders and about subversion. But this one, feels like an outlier among them. And I'm wondering if, because it is this sort of turning the camera back on himself and his crew, if it's a little too inside baseball, and that's why it takes a little bit more for the audience to meet it. Because you're right. like I think to rail against the suburbs, to rail against Vietnam, or to rail against segregation makes sense. But to kind of rail against Forrest Gump too... We get it, but you have to take a couple steps further in.
2: Well, especially at that time period, he was finally breaking into and getting the mainstream success that he hadn't had for a big part of his career. And the part of the reason why this movie just feels so electric is because it is kind of a a big fuck you to that studio system that had just finally started to embrace him. You know, he's working with these up-and-coming stars, a lot of whom go on to have major careers, some of whom were already in the midst of having major careers, and they are all turning and saying, no, these more artistic, these weirder films, these things that flow under the radar deserve to be lifted up and we should be taking more chances. We should be getting more weird with this. And I think for some of the people involved with it, that was a big step, but it's hard for a lot of people who are going to be watching this movie to say, oh, well, I liked Forrest Gump. (laughs) or, you know, any number of the other films that they kind of rail against in this movie, Uh, you know, Patch Adams or The Flintstones. I think they mentioned Godzilla. And, you know, there's a whole list of things that I'm like millions and billions of people probably watched Godzilla and thought it was a perfectly fine movie. And then there are the rest of us who are actual like John Waters fans and be like, it's just not the same when it's not divine, you know, (laughs) rampaging through the city. We want something a little bit more transgressive. And the audiences that John was picking up with his success from Hairspray and Crybaby and Serial Mom are going to come into this movie and just not know what to do with it. And I think that that's one of the things that makes it so special is it is like him speaking directly to the audience that he had left behind or, or, you know, was still there, but needed that kind of hand to be like, no, I'm still with you.
0: This film, when it came out, because we were the theater that had the exclusive in Northern California, the Bridge Theater, had the most amazing stuff made to promote the movie, and which actually a lot of it's featured in the Pope of Trash show. Uh, and I was reminded when I went through the Pope of Trash show at the Academy Museum, just how incredibly lavish the marketing was for this film and how much weird stuff they made to promote it. And it goes in the face of sort of the beginning of that exhibit where John was making homemade posters, you know, that he would draw himself, you know, he he had reached this level. And the movie features and celebrates all these filmmakers who are outsider filmmakers such as John. That being said, something I didn't pick up on that I really enjoyed this time was the connection between the kind of renegade filmmaker fans of Kenneth Anger and um, Spike Lee and all the people that that the cult celebrates with pornography, porn fans, people who enjoy porn and action movies (laughs) – (laughs) (laughs) like the action movie thing caused me to sort of raise an eyebrow and then I thought you know what no that makes sense there is this sort of outsider connection between film fans that are passionate about a specific thing and so when you look at the films that they're really kind of ripping apart like the Patch Adams and the Forrest Gump it's stupid shit that gets lauded and put up on a pedestal but porn films and action films horror movies these genre films are always overlooked right so I'm just wondering what was your thought when you realized that um the cult of film fans was gonna be joining and asking for support? Mostly I'm curious about the action fans.
2: <laughs> it makes more sense with the porn folks, right? And I think yeah. having started off with Polyester, like the dad in that movie runs a porn theater. And so there is a connection to John's world in my mind already. And of course, like it makes sense. We love porn, we love our porn performers, but plenty of people in San Francisco touching the Jag community work in porn. And it's like, it's fantastic. We love that. That tracked to me. I always forget about the action scene, to be honest. And we were just rewatching it last week. And it surprised me again, but it, it absolutely makes sense. You know, it's the same thing that you said about horror. These genres never get held up. They're not getting Academy Awards or very rarely. And then when they do, it feels like, a, oh, we're humoring you, you know, and we call it elevated or what have you. Action movie fans almost never get that, you right. know, I think in some ways, there's more broader appeal. A lot more people probably like action movies. But they were there seeing, uh, you know, some old martial arts film. I think you have to be a dedicated fan of that genre, in to be sitting in a in a matinee at the middle of the day watching a, a Bruce Lee movie or what have you. You know, it's like it draws a certain subset of people who are passionate about the experience of watching that on screen and that's exactly the type of people that we want to be uh welcoming into our film cult you know it makes perfect sense you're excited about cinema not just whatever's in theaters you are excited about even if it is a specific genre coming and experiencing something with your fellow film fans in a theater and not just going to see whatever is put in front of you Flintstones 2, Patch Adams 2, whatever it is Actually, I am an action movie fan. i maybe not as much as some other genres, but I'm like, it makes perfect sense to me. You know, it does speak to uh, that kind of liberation, especially with these characters who are terrorists, you know, who are running around (laughs) with guns in hand.
1: Well, you know, I don't think I've ever had an opportunity to talk about this yet on Midnight Mass, but back when I was hosting Dead for Filth, this came up a few times, and I've always felt, especially during the run of the uh, Decade of Excess, of the slasher movies of the 80s, that there was kinship between the action movies of the 80s and the horror movies of the 80s, because often they all had extreme gore. It was just presented in different ways, and they were always presented in this sort of ultra outside of reality kind of way. And the people who made those movies often made both. And Canon Films, of course, is one of the most legendary B-movie production houses. And there are people, I mean, we've done Canon movies here on the podcast and they were primarily known for action. I think the synergy between action and horror is a lot more intertwined than uh, people realize to the point where there are, Action movies that are actually horror movies like Cobra and, you know, Ten to Midnight. And I love that that was something he explored lightly here. I say lightly because it's not full on Stallone, but it's, it's definitely the John Waters version of that. Now, we're talking a lot about the devotion to cinema and the subsects of cinema. And of course, you must have known that when we were talking about Cecil B. Demented, this question would come up. Peaches has already alluded to the fact that each of the members of the cult has a tattoo for a filmmaker that they love. And we put this to our other guests. And now we're going to ask you, if you were to get a tattoo of a filmmaker to represent you and your ideals, who would it be and why and The only caveat is you cannot choose
2: John Waters. That is a very difficult question, and obviously that is what I would have picked.
1: One of the reasons, obviously, that we decided to exclude John Waters because it feels obvious in an episode about John Waters. But um, Peaches is, in many ways, a direct descendant of Elvira and John Waters, and we wanted to remove the personal connection. So I also took personal connection directors off the table So uh, I didn't choose Lloyd Kaufman. I didn't choose Stuart Gordon. And I said Dario Argento, which is convenient considering that you and I are doing a media meltdown for an Argento movie together. But Argento is so influential to me and his like kind of mix of... of You're both Italian. The grotesque and the beautiful, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And? Italian. Italian, Yes, yes. yes.
0: I chose William Castle mostly because I think William Castle... Is not just an inspiration to me as a filmmaker, but also everything
2: else I do, from Midnight
0: Mass to Terror Vault. So, yeah, absolutely.
2: Lying. And you know, Fidget loves William Castle. The two yeah. of you could uh, bond over it. We could Fidget. This relates back to probably my favorite quote from Castle: "Will be demented." Technique is nothing more than failed style. I'm going to go with Edward D. Wood Jr. Oh, I've perfect. always had a huge fandom with him. I have a little bit of an Ed Wood collection, um, some posters and some of his like cult novels and things of that nature that he's written. So I've always been a big fan of him and his story. I think that I'm going to go with that.
0: Good answer. Good answer. Didn't we have a second... Question that we were going to ask all guests about Cecil B. Demented. You have to fuck one of the sprocket holes.
1: I don't remember the question being phrased quite like that. Sorry,
0: that's not how how it was phrased. It was, um, who's your favorite sprocket
2: hole? (laughs) I'll answer both. Okay, there you go. When I was a kid, I had a crush on Fidget. He also reminded me of, um, uh, what's the name of the Baltimore foot stomper in polyester? I think John Stark. Dexter, yeah. Yeah. The two of them have kind of a similar vibe that I, like, especially when I was a youth, I always really uh, responded to on a sexual level. But no, if I was going to fuck any of them, it would be Rodney, the beautiful El Moldavar loving hairdresser.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow. The straight hairdresser, yes.
2: But I always, of course, fall in love with straight people. Who is my favorite is the one that I did a look for when we did our Social Be Demented screening, which is Raven, the goth makeup artist played by Maggie Hall. I love her devotion to Satan. I love her look, especially in the latter half of the movie. She's wearing this like hand stoned skeleton hoodie and jean combo. I made it into like a skeleton gown when I did it. But uh, her fashion is incredible throughout the entire thing. And, you know, she's probably crazy, but she loves demons. She loves drinking goat urine. It's fierce. <laughs> I mean, fair. And that's who Michael chose.
1: No, I picked Alicia Witt's character. But I also oh, said yeah. that Raven was a close second because they're both ferocious. They also have some of my favorite moments in the cults, you know, the lines that they both deliver.
2: The whole scene in the Porian theater with an anal evening with Cherish. <laughs> <laughs> okay. i picked
0: a deeper cut choice in pd watching the movie this time i was like wow i fucking love pd and i just can't stop seeing him as chop top from texas chainsaw massacre 2 like he's gay chop top and i loved it
2: his tattoo is fassbender right i believe so assbender so. oh fassbender sorry i just me watched like two weeks ago. And so then seeing Cecil after that, I was like, oh, Petey definitely looks like he had just wandered off of a Fassbender set.
1: Yes, yes, so good. Okay, so here's a question we actually didn't ask our last guest about this. You've got this dynamic group of artists who are all extremely committed to the cause, so much so that they kidnap a big Hollywood star. We see them making the movie throughout this movie. Do you think the movie that they made is good?
2: That is such a... difficult question. What does that even mean? I feel (laughs) (laughs) like I celebrate so many movies that are made on a dime string budget. And in order to do that, you have to look past so many production issues around it. And I think that things that are made in that style are still very watchable. Obviously, your mileage varies with that. There are plenty of people who would not agree. And there's been so many times where I've tried to do a media meltdown around something that other people are like, "I don't know how you can sit through this shit." Um, I would watch it. I couldn't tell you if it's <laughs> good. I, I'm obsessed with that opening uh, scene that they shoot on the sound stage—the like yes. one set that they use. But then after that, it's such a high speed action romp through all of these crazy things that they do. I don't know how that couldn't be entertaining. I love her special effect, like, or her stunt, I should say. It's not a special effect. I love that she's
0: going to do her own stunts and the way they shoot that sequence where it's like, okay, clearly if Melanie Griffith jumped off that building, she would fucking break all of her legs and probably die. You know, <laughs> it's like but 10 I, stories. Yeah, it's like 10 stories. And she kind of just sort of like politely like lands you know I think what's great about it is you kind of get to imagine what that movie is going to end up being and yeah. it's it sort of it's sort of reminiscent of the end of Pee-wee's big adventure when he goes to see his movie at the drive-in and you know he has that cameo where he's you know paging Mr. Herman I get that that movie's probably terrible and that's the point but I still want to see it and I bet right. I'd be entertained by it I feel like the same thing with uh, Cecil's movie it's like I bet it would be great but maybe not for all the right reasons
2: but I don't Think there's ever really been like many John Waters movies where I'm like, I would really love to see a sequel to this. Lewis has a line at one point where he asks Cecil, um, even if we die, our movie could still be a hit, right? Right, Cecil? And he just is like (laughs) singing the songs, completely trying to ignore the question. You don't even really know, does anybody finish it? Does anybody get to watch it at the end? Does it just kind of exist in theory? But, you know, they finished it, and so it is done.
0: The finishing of that film kind of leads me to something that we haven't really discussed very much. And so before we wrap up, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about the meta of it all and how of all of his films, this might be the most Meta and the most sort of autobiographical because you've got a filmmaker who's referencing his own early career beginnings with the dreamlanders you know the sprocket holes in many ways are are sort of the dreamlanders and you've got sort of representations of van smith and vincent peranio and we talked about how you've got an actress who is being asked to set her hair on fire which is what john famously asked mink stole to do at the end of pink flamingos and mink refused and they had a big fight i think he's written about it so it's out there you know and he finally gets to do it with melanie griffith i mean that's Very meta. One thing we really haven't talked about is the Patricia Hearst part of this film. Yeah, This is a movie essentially kind of making light of a real-life kidnapping, a real-life situation where an underground activist group, the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, kidnapped Patricia Hearst, Kept her trapped, tied up. You know, it was horrible. It was a horrible situation. She was beaten and raped and, you know, it it was awful and, and brainwashed into joining their cause and storming the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco with that iconic shot of Patricia Hearst holding the gun. This movie isn't subtle and it's taking that as inspiration and then you've got her in the movie as a concerned mother, right? So you've got the woman who this movie is kind of, in a sense, parodying or, you know, at least referencing homaging. I don't know what you would call it. To me, Patricia being in the movie is sort of a wink and a nod saying, I love John so fucking much. He has my full permission. I embrace this.
2: It's kind of incredible. I'm glad that you brought this up because it was one of the things that I was really thinking about a lot when I just rewatched the film. Frankly, I had forgotten that Patricia Hearst was even in it. I know she has a few small parts in a few of John's movies. She's only in like three minutes of the film, Max I'm always really struck by the scene when they raid the uh, film commission because she's given a gun. Cecil tells her that it's filled with blanks. And You don't really catch it at first, but I think you realize she doesn't believe him and then chooses to fire the gun anyway. She gets so caught up into it. She actually is willing to shoot somebody. And then you don't realize until afterwards she gets this look of shock on her face. Oh, it really was blanks. He wasn't bullshitting me. She was ready to jump full in on that so early in the film. That's one of the first things that they do so well-performed by Melanie Griffith. You can really see so subtly the transformation as she starts to accept this group and believe them and starts to relate to each of them individually. And it is really wild to think about how closely that must have mirrored Patricia's life.
1: It's interesting because, and I'm sure there are papers on it, I don't want to assume that we're cracking the case wide open here, but I don't hear enough made about the fact that true crime is so crucial to so many of John Waters' works in different ways. We know very much that there was an influence of the Manson case on earlier works of his, as well as things that in, in connections and relationships he has that he's written about. We know that Serial Mom is very much inspired by true crime and the idea that it's set up as sort of the dramatization of a true crime that didn't happen, but he's kind of in this place. He hosted a true crime show that most people don't even remember called Till Death Do Us Part, where he talked about people who kill each other on their wedding nights. You should track it down. So this one, though, is interesting because it's not a degree of separation. You're right. It is a person he knows that he's drawing directly on their very famous case but it's also extremely sympathetic in both obvious ways and not obvious ways and maybe it goes beyond just patricia hurst's love for john but i wonder if there's a catharsis the idea of like putting yourself in this thing that you know if you're in the movie people are going to be like oh her you know that kind of
2: space. It is really fascinating to just watch it all unfold. Yeah.
1: That Maryland
0: Film Commission scene is so fucking hilarious if you're from Maryland because that sequence of them slurping the oysters is something that... uh you know, as a a Marylander, we grow up eating crabs in this way that I didn't realize is specific to Maryland until I left Maryland and brought people home and, you know, we'd sit down to have a crab feast and people would be mortified by the tradition of a Maryland crab feast. But the other thing that we grew up with that, you know, I didn't realize was unique was raw oysters. You know, growing up next to the Chesapeake Bay, you eat raw oysters all the time. And that sequence of them just grossly slurping, the fucking sound is on those slurps is so over the top and so hilarious. Anyway, I just had to—I had to note that that was another thing I really appreciated in this most recent viewing of Cecil B. Demented. But Sailor, you have been the perfect guest to have on. For who? This. Who? Oh
3: shit! <laughs>
2: It's okay. It's all over my uh, socials. It's not like I try and blur the lines. I've always had a career where I'm like rotating back and forth, like between being behind the camera, behind the stage, and then on it. So uh, everybody knows me as as both things.
0: Very like me. And you, uh, through Media Meltdown, I, I I got to see one of your short films uh, that you had screen at Media Meltdown recently. Hilarious and fabulous. We share a lot of talent between Sailors Group and Terror Vault and the Peaches Christ Productions. You'll see all the same performers in all of these universes. Where can people see your next Media Meltdown show?
2: I don't actually have anything scheduled until after the time that this will air. But uh, we do a... Quarterly series at the Four Star Theater in San Francisco. It's a beautiful local uh, single screen that uh, just recently got renovated and open. I love the partnership that we have with Cinema SF, who owns that theater. They also run the Balboa, and sometimes we'll do events over there as well. So if you're in San Francisco, definitely check those out. Check out our website, MediaMeltdown.tv. We're renovating it right now, but by the time that this airs, it'll be nice and up and running. It'll have some of our short films on it that you can watch. Uh, Franken Divine which we actually screened at our screening of will be Demented and uh, Evil in Residence. And we're working on some more stuff right now. We're hoping to do a digital version of Select Mine Own Journey uh, with the cast at some point so that people online can uh, make them, you know, I'd like to record every segment and have it set up in a way that people can play at home and explore all the different options. So that's down the down the line thinking. Um, and we're hoping to make a feature soon. So uh, oh, stay tuned for that. Uh, MediaMeltdown.tv or Media SF, San Francisco, on uh, all socials. And I'm at Piranha underscore Psychotronica. Well, thank you so much for coming yes. on. It's been fabulous.
0: More to come. I, I have a feeling we'll get Piranha on one of our Midnight mini
2: masses soon. I would absolutely love that.
1: <laughs> thank you for keeping the spirit of Cecil alive with punk rock cinema and screenings and all you do.
2: Thank you, Peaches. Thank you, Michael. That
1: was our interview with the fabulous Piranha Psychotronica. I love Piranha. I recently got to come up to San Francisco and do a show with Piranha and Media Meltdown. And I love that Piranha has celebrated Cecil B. Demented at their show because this movie really is one that doesn't screen as much in the John Waters pantheon, but deserves celebration. And it deserves that kind of wild drag spirit that runs the whole way through the movie. Yeah, if I am the child of the Dreamlanders,
0: which I like to think I am, uh, then I think Piranha is the grandchild You know, Piranha is the grandchild of Divine, Edith Massey, Mink Stoll, uh, David Lockery, John Waters, you know. And I'm very proud to know Piranha and to see what she's done, you know. It is no easy feat to keep cinema and exhibition interesting these days and to keep butts coming to the movie theater seats. And she has put those butts in the seats for years. And um, I'm very, very impressed because it's not easy to do. So kudos to you, Piranha. If you are out there and you are also thinking about how to bring filth across the pond to London or to your suburban American town or wherever you may be. Because we have listeners in Australia. We have listeners in Eastern Europe. Yes. If you are out there and you are prepared to die for the sake of art and to celebrate underground film by any means necessary, even if it means kidnapping a list Hollywood star well then you too may be one of the children of the popcorn now <laughs> <laughs>
1: Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.